Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, brought to you in partnership with Christianity Today and Kairos Partnerships. Always good to be with you, Doug. Good to see you this morning. You too, JR. I mean, it's crazy to think we are in season seven. Like, this is re- this is really happening, man. Biblical number, baby. Yes. Season we're, seven. We're going to ride seven. this. We are going to ride yeah. this. A long time. <laughs> a long time. Well, uh, tell us tell us what we've got coming up here today. Yeah, so we have a bit of a longer interview with with uh, Tish Harrison Warren, and uh, I know Jr. was able to to just have a great conversation, and so it's longer and it's on the long side, but we're just going to cut right to the point and jump right into the interview. So we'll see, we'll see you guys next week. Tish Harrison Warren is a priest in the Anglican Church in North America. She's the author of Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life, which was Christianity Today's 2018 Book of the Year. She most recently has written the book Prayer in the Night for those who work or watch or weep. She's worked in ministry settings for over a decade as a campus minister with InterVarsity Graduate and Faculty Ministries as an associate rector and with addicts and those in poverty through various churches and nonprofit organizations. Currently, she is the writer in residence at Resurrection South Austin. She's a monthly columnist with Christianity Today, and her articles and essays have appeared in the New York Times, Religion News Services, Christianity Today, and elsewhere. She's the founding member of the Pelican Project and a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum. She lives with her husband, Jonathan, and their three children in the Austin, Texas area. In this wide-ranging conversation, we talk about boundaries in marriage, marriage counseling, the loss of her father, two miscarriages, a hard move across the country, surgery, and other difficulties. We talk about preform prayer versus inherited prayers. And we also talk about writing as an expression of pastoral calling and the difficulty that comes with the writing process. We also talk about joy and how difficult it is, especially for those of us who are pastors to talk about, to preach about, and to embody this concept of joy. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Tish Harrison Warren. Well, Tish, thanks so much for your willingness to be on the Monday Morning Pastor podcast here today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we were talking before we pressed record here just about, you know, how we balance life with ministry. And that's certainly one of the main themes of this podcast. And so one of the things I find that's so unique about you and your situation is you're not only in ministry, but you're in ministry with your spouse, that you and Jonathan are ACNA priests. Um, so I'm curious, what does that look like for you all? I, I imagine that's beautiful, but it also brings its complexities as well. So what does that look like and what are healthy boundaries around ministry and family for you all? Yeah, so it's just um, looked really different over the years. And um, it's uh it's funny because I've never had an I've I've only I've only been married to Jonathan so I don't um know what it would be like to be married to someone who who just had a com- who is a doctor or completely different he's actually a doc uh, he has a PhD kind of doctor but I mean a medical doctor like uh at, or had just a, a completely different career for me although there have been times where we've worked more separately and our work hasn't overlapped a lot. And then there's been times where we've literally we've sh- we've job shared, and we've we were associate rectors together and shared shared a job. So we've we've had a lot of overlap. We've had not much overlap. We actually do better when we when we don't have complete overlap. We've found like it's it's 
we are both in ministry, but it's nice when we kind of have our own um, little, uh, we have overlapping but separate kind of work. Um, mm-hmm. And, but I, I mean, we certainly are partners. Like we, um, we um, bounce ideas off of each other a lot. We give each other feedback. We, you can sort of tell by my response to a sermon if, you know, I never, we've, we've found early on that you can't, if, if you think someone did terrible at a sermon, you don't tell them <laughs> on Sunday or Monday, you really wait till about Wednesday or Thursday yeah. to give the feedback, but he can tell by my, he can tell by my body language and response what I thought now. Um, so, and vice versa. So we, we certainly, um, are, we've always, we both love theology. And so we talk about it a lot. And and so being married to my husband, I should at least have a, at least another master's degree conferred on me, may, maybe more. But <laughs> so I, I do feel like you, I just sort of, um, we learn a lot from one another and we, and we both love reading and, and talking about things. But I, I'll also say there's a, the, the difficult side is um, I didn't, we both were ordained actually on the same day. And I don't think either of us realized that being a clergy spouse is its own separate sort of job. Uh, <laughs> and uh. so we knew we were becoming clergy, but also we were both becoming clergy spouses and that's um, its own kind of vocation. So it was a, vo- it was a vocation that we didn't really expect right because we were both getting ordained on our own so I wasn't just sort of you know it's a it's it's a thing in in complementarian circles that the way a woman gets into ministry is to be a pastor's wife and this was told to me when I was when I kind of gave my life to ministry as a Baptist kid people came Mm -hmm. forward and said we're so glad you gave your life to ministry we think you'll be an amazing pastor's wife and I was like what like what mm-hmm. what does that look like? How does one become a pastor? Like, how do you find a pastor to marry you? Um. So then, when when I married Jonathan, he was in law school, and no desire to be in ministry. Um. So I wasn't expecting to. I, I was still going into ministry, um, but I wasn't expecting him to. Long story short, and that's kind of a whole separate thing. He really, um felt called continues to feel called um to to serve the local church to be a pastor and so um so that was a surprise but but finding um even as clergy even as a pastor myself that being a pastor's wife is a separate kind of it just takes time i mean really pragmatically like if 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 he goes to the hospital to be with someone um, to do pastoral care, like someone's got to be there to catch, to catch the kids and to catch everything that needs to be sort of caught at home and vice versa. Right. When I go do things. So it's, um, super drug into the light, all latent, uh, understanding of gender roles that we have mm-hmm. and have, mm-hmm. uh, we've had to like massively work through that because it's, uh, so much of marriage is not, um, it's not the kind of um, articulated beliefs we have. It's more of how our imagination is shaped. It has a lot to do with 
what your own family is like and how you grew up. And I grew up in conservative Texas culture. He's Puerto Rican. And um, so we both uh, grew up with pretty kind of overtly patriarchal cultures. And um, Mm. even though my mom, my mom always was the mayor of our town worked and, um, but the way sort of our family functioned. So it's been Mm. interesting because we, even though I'm a female priest, I think we, we, as we've actually had to navigate, you know, who's cooking dinner and (laughs) and who's taking care of the kids and on what days we, we honestly just have done what works, what, what's best for the family as a whole. And so it's really different in different seasons of our life, but it's exposed all this sort of um, latent imaginative uh, patriarchy that we like didn't Mm -hmm. realize was there. I, and honestly more for me than him like uh uh, he's actually been better at sort of flexing and me having to kind of let go of my own um my own sort of uh guilt but also i i don't know like uh just it's really just imagination around what uh what marriage is but it's made us i mean i think we have a really good marriage um not a perfect marriage but we we still really like each other, which which is some, saying something. So we um, that's been really good. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And I, I imagine just those extra layers, some of those you knew going in and some of those you didn't. And oh, yeah. uh, I'm glad to hear you all still like each other. That's a, that's a, <laughs> I know. That's, that's a well, plus. There, there's been times <laughs> we really haven't, you know, I need to say that. And especially just pastors being real, like the ministry yeah. is hard on marriage. It's super hard. Yeah. So we, um, we, are always in marriage counseling. I mean, honestly, the majority of our marriage, we we, we have an appointment today and we're doing fine. This is actually just, we have like a checkup at this point because yeah. we like our counselor so much. We don't want to lose our spot. Um, And so, uh, but I'm a huge believer in actually f- like fighting. We, we fight and we, and, mm. and working it out and getting into it and having friends that you can pray about your marriage with and talk and also, um, getting marriage counseling I, I just if you're a pastor and you don't have a you don't go to marriage counseling like it, mm. i don't know how you do it i, I really don't well, yeah that's a good word i wasn't word. planning on talking about this today but no i'm, I'm grateful my, you did i mean this is this, this is, is very mmp like this is good this, <laughs> this is, is my plea that pastors go to counseling and um and especially with their spouse but mm-hmm. yeah that's good good work i mean i still yeah. have i don't want to i'm not going to put a book on marriage out anytime soon because like, <laughs> like the like the second you do people end yeah. up but we, we're going on 17 years and we still we still really do like each other yeah that's uh, great yeah that's great that's a good word now i know too that you've had quite a season of loss and pain and disorientation in your family and of course, you know, everybody with the pandemic, but just for you personally, there's been a lot. And so I'm, I'm curious too, just as we talk on this podcast of, you know, we sometimes forget that pastors are, are people first. And so what is all of that loss and pain and disorientation? Um, what has that felt like for you at your deepest level? I mean, how have you coped with that yeah. uh, in the midst of this? Yeah, you're referring, I'm assuming to the, to 2017 and what I described in the book of moving 
Yeah, it was really hard. Uh, it was particularly hard because we were in a brand new church for us. And so we were in personal struggle and felt like we were in a free fall at a time when we were supposed to be establishing leadership in this new place. Um, so I certainly don't think we did it perfectly. Um, there were some people that came around us in the midst of that um, who really became family to us, who, who just, who loved us well, and who kind of, who just sort of non-judgmentally supported us in the middle of that. Um, and um, one of them was not a parishioner. She was just a friend in the town, which I think helped. Um, she eventually ended up becoming, coming to our church, but at, at the time of our sort of crisis, she wasn't. Another person was um, another, she was a staff person at the church, a lay staff person at the church, but uh, the, our director of ministry. Um, and a few others, uh, uh, um, some neighbors of ours who in, who did go to our church, but we just got really close with um, with some folks who kind of just carried us through that. Um, uh, but it was really hard, honestly. I mean, it. Um, I think we didn't have a good. We didn't have enough margin at the time. Mm. I mean, just to be honest, I'm. I'm I wish I could say every way we handled it was kind of wonderful, but it wasn't. And we didn't have enough margin built into our life um, to, um, to, to make space and process. Um, and, and really, so I think I spent a lot of the, the first part of that trying to push away the grief. Um, to keep going, to move forward, to be a leader. And really it was probably, it was after my second miscarriage, July of that year that I realized I have to, I, I, I have to really, I have to go into this grief. I have to feel this. And, um, that's really difficult as a pastor. It really is. I cried, um, during a lot of my sermons. Mm Um, I, the, church really graciously and and I think that this should be standard but they um they you know my second miscarriage was a second trimester miscarriage it was I was I wasn't super far along but I I was um it was I was 14 weeks along and so they said you know if you had your baby we would have given you maternity leave so we're just gonna go ahead and give you bereavement leave so I had I think four weeks off um and that was that was absolutely crucial for me. I can't explain. I mean, I think I, I, I mean, I, I think I said something at the time to um, there was one coworker in particular who really advocated that we have that I have this, um, and I said, you know, I I think that I. Uh, could come back as a pastor who still loves Jesus because I had that mm. time. Like, I, I think mm. if I would have just continued, I, I don't, I don't think that I, I don't know what would have happened. I'm not saying mm. I would have like deconstructed and left the faith, but it was a, it would have been, a, it was a real possibility. Um, mm. And so having that time and I, I, we went on a trip, we left. Um, 
I just had some space to grieve was unbelievably important to me uh, and allowed me to kind of wrestle with God and um, mourn and, and be angry and ask questions and journal and read the Psalms and, uh, and, and as, you know, talking to my husband about this and us talking through this theologically and us fighting and praying and crying, it allowed some of the space to do those things where it, where I didn't have to be kind of on and ministry at every moment. So it was only four weeks, but I think it was, I think it really probably kind of made, it was a make or break kind of moment Mm -hmm. in my life. so really, it was just the, the Holy Spirit being really working through one particular coworker, advocating for me to have some some bereavement time, which was mm. was huge. Um, and particularly because we we don't typically give that for people um, who experience miscarriage. Like, it, it, honestly, miscarriage is just people say, "Try again," you know. It, it and yeah. so, um, yeah. So so. Uh, that was huge. Um, I think, uh, um, the church culture is really important here. I I think, um, having, and and this was honestly pretty countercultural, even for the space we're in, but having a, um, man, there, there can just be such a, a pressure for the pastor to kind of, um, be, um, be be a sort of constantly buoyant. I don't know if that's the right word, but but just mm. sort of pressing on and moving on and not letting their weakness show. I don't mean that we like wallow and sob through every sermon, but I also really do mean. Um, I think I don't know how to do ministry without being really authentic about where I am and. There are some churches that value that, and there are some churches that don't. And um, and and I think having a church culture where the pastor can be weak and where um, where they can um, they can grieve and struggle and wrestle is a, is really important. I think it gives the congregation permission to um, to grieve in their own life and in their own ways. So I don't know. I mean, it was a dance. We, we certainly, if I, if I could go back, I would have, um, I would have taken more time off for sure. After my father's death. Um, I think I kind of threw myself into work as a way of coping with that in a way that wasn't, that ended up, I think making the, the grieving process a lot longer because I just delayed it for a long time. Um, and I, yeah, we just needed more more margin in our life than we had. And but um, but there were some really beautiful things that that happened too. Most especially with I would say we just had a really we had a great community. Um, and they were they were really caring and really supportive of us. Um, so those are yeah. And then the rest is sort of in the book. I mean, prayer, but. Uh, uh, my way I, I prayer was really difficult and my way back to prayer um became the liter you know the liturgy and received prayer and prayers of silence became so much more important to me um so it helped to be anglican yeah. honestly so. <laughs> yeah and let's let's dip into that a little bit there as we talk about 
uh, you're new and maybe not so new now. It's been out a little bit, but prayer in the night and, you know, center around a prayer that you found, it, you know, in the Book of Common Prayer here. And if I could, I'll just I'll just recite it if that's all right. And then I would love for you to answer, like, why did that hit you afresh as you've read this, even though I assume you've read it multiple times? The prayer from the Book of Common Prayer, it says, Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night, and give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, Lord Christ, give rest to the weary, bless the dying, soothe the suffering, pity the afflicted, shield the joyous, and all of your loves, for all, and all for your love's sake. Amen. Why, why do you sense that that hits you afresh, even though you'd read it many times before? Um, well, part of it is because I read it many times before. I think that mm. um, it had, it was because this was a regular sort of practice that it, it kind of had reached into, gotten into me enough, gotten to reached into my bone, gotten into my bones, into my DNA enough that when I couldn't pray and when I didn't have words to say to God and when I when I felt kind of lost, um, it's what bubbled up, right? It's, um, it's what came, and I think um, so. I I think that it was um, the familiarity of it um, that allowed it to sort of where I didn't have to perform in it and I didn't have to kind of show up and try to kind of ex always authentically express to God where I was, which is just exhausting, but I could really sort of, um, I could just be sad. I could be grieving and weary and, and throw myself onto these familiar prayers. I think that was helpful. I also think, um, Compline itself was really helpful for me, um, just because it it acknowledges darkness. We in in that prayer we talk about death, we talk about mortality, we talk about sickness, and it I needed something that really acknowledged human vulnerability, and and the whole all of all of Compline does. I mean, we we say that awake we may watch with Christ, and asleep we may rest in peace. We talk about perils and dangers in this night. Um, we uh, there's um, we pray for a peaceful night and a perfect end. Like there, there's just so much that sort of it talks about death or sounds like death or, um, but also about sickness and about weakness, about perils and dangers, about the plague that stalks in darkness. These are all kinds of lines in. Compline and I needed something that um, was really honest about how truly dark things were in a non-manipulative way, but just in a really honest kind of way about the things are broken and things are dark. And um, at the same time, I, I tried to listen to sort of like a daily devotional and it was from um, this kind of uh, evangelical a British pastor and it, it was good. And maybe at a different time in my life, it would have been really helpful, but it was just so upbeat. It was so positive. It was so like, Jesus will give, you know, Jesus will bring joy and peace and cheer up. And <laughs> I really do believe Jesus brings joy and peace, but I was not feeling that at that moment. And so, um, so I needed something that sort of 
was really honest about how how really really vulnerable we are how really really scary really sad life actually is and then in the middle of that said called on Jesus to be our light right and called us to a place of trust and called us to a place of hope I just I needed um someone to acknowledge how really dark things were before I could um before I could hear their call to trust God in the midst of that and their call to light in the midst of that the light of Christ and so um I think that helped just sort of the emotional tenor of the prayers themselves mm. uh and the scriptures do this all the time the psalms do this all the time but I um I needed someone in order to not belittle the um redemption of Jesus and the the truth of resurrection I needed mm. a place that really in no way belittled how bad things are and how hard the cross really is um and so I sort of found that in in the in in these prayers in Compline but in the liturgy more generally I mean I can't I don't talk about this a lot in the book, but I feel like the Eucharist is a, has become super important to me because I I didn't have to perform. You show up, especially as an Anglican pastor. Even when I'm when I'm doing the when I'm celebrating the Eucharist, I I just I just read and pray the words I'm given, right? And so, um, but it's this picture of death. It's this picture of brokenness. And we're talking about a sacrifice and, and a blood flowing right in the middle of our services. And then it's also this meal of joy. It's the future eschaton. It's the feast of the mm. lamb when all things are set right. And so I just, I needed things that were really, that just, I needed a faith that didn't pull punches, that was mm. really, really honest about how broken things were. And that proclaimed Jesus in the middle of that. And, and that, that's kind of what I found in the ancient worship of the church. Um, that's kind of the enduring, enduring stuff. Like, yeah. And I, and mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't want to be too hard on kind of modern evangelicalism here. Because I think like, I don't know. I mean, a lot. So. I don't know. Like my kids love that song, you know, it's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms, you know, that song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's great for kids. You know, and I'm glad they're learning that. And, and there's like good things about peppy evangelicalism, but we're not going to be singing that song in a thousand years. Like we're just not. And the stuff that is enduring is the stuff that, because life is hard. And, and so the stuff that we kind of pass from generation to generation ends up being stuff that like fully acknowledges the brokenness and fully acknowledges that God is good and beautiful and sovereign and loving in the middle of that. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think those things that have, that I received part of the reason they've endured is they just hold that deep, deep emotional complexity in a Mm -hmm. way that like, it's just really hard for us to do in the American church. We, we have a difficult time with complexity, I think. Yeah. Yeah, you talk in the book about free form versus inherited prayer, and we have a lot of uh, liturgical pastors or liturgical congregants who listen to this, but we also have those who maybe liturgy 
you know, they can say, yeah, from afar, I can appreciate that. I mean, that's important. And, and I think that was helpful. You quoted Stanley Hauerwas, who we call St. Stan. Uh, evangelicalism, <laughs> he said, is currently under or is constantly under the burden of reinventing the wheel and you just get tired. Uh, mm-hmm. And Hauerwas goes on, we don't have we don't have to make it up. There's much to be said for Christianity as repetition. And I think evangelicalism doesn't have enough repetition in a way that will form Christians to survive in a world that constantly tempts us to always think we have to do something new. Yeah. I think many people would read that in your book and say, yeah, I agree with that. And you even use the metaphor at the beginning of the book about cairns along the foggy path up uh, hiking Mount Washington. Great metaphor. I, on the other end, I can also hear some of our listeners say, yeah, but what do you do when it starts to feel rote and, and just plain? I know it's training wheels to our prayers, uh, what would you want to say to those that maybe either haven't experienced liturgical prayers or maybe experienced the beauty of the Book of Common Prayer? What what do what do inherited prayers do for us even when they feel stale or mm-hmm. I just don't want to pray them? Yeah, that's right. That's a great question. So I want to say a couple things. Number one, uh, I'm all for extemporaneous prayer. It, that's it's still probably the most common way that I pray. Um, and in these forms of prayer, like in in Compline and in morning prayer and evening prayer, there's this space for, it's like you can add your, it's something, it sounds very um, official. It's something like um, approved petitions can be added here or something, but it's basically like, here's where you mm-hmm. pray about whatever you want to pray about. Um, so, and even, yeah, I mean, today I've, uh, I've, had extemporaneous prayer. This is probably the most common way that I I pray still throughout the day is just sort of talking to God. Um, so there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and I actually think one of the reasons, one of the things I think we all, every single person in the American church needs to recover is on one hand, I think we need to be deep, deep, deeply rooted in our tradition. But I also think we need to be open receiving those things from other traditions that are um that are helpful i i just think there there is like white evangelicalism there's so much wrong with it and it gets such a bad rap now but there's like beautiful things in evangelicalism that we that would just be a shame to let go of um and catholicism there's i'm not catholic there's ways i disagree with it but we there's there's deep the Holy Spirit was working in the church for thousands of years. And um, Justin Martyr, I think, said uh, about about the church, about Christians, he said, everything good and beautiful belongs to us, um, mm-hmm. which is, uh, in some ways, absolute o- appropriation. But you have, I mean, Justin Martyr was like in the second century or something. I don't even know what third, yeah, I don't know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe third century. So I'll have to look it up. Um, but, but we say that a lot here, because I think if we, if we find something beautiful and, and, and good in extemporaneous prayer, which I think there is, um, that belongs to me too. I mean, that, that's part of why I'm an Anglican, because I can sort of claim it all. And, and when we find something good and beautiful in, in receive prayer, you know, these, we have a third century prayer from St. Chrysostom in our prayer book, um, that belongs to me too. Um, and so uh, I think that we need to sort of a, approach practices like that. Um, but but to the specific point of what do you do when it becomes rote, I mean, it will become rote. Um, 
That's absolutely true. Extemporaneous prayer becomes rote. It's crazy to think it doesn't. Um, in fact, I think it kind of becomes rote faster sometimes because you're, you're just, uh, um, well, at least for me, I'll just speak for me. For me, my, I think my journal, these journal, I just read, um, burning in my bones, Eugene Peterson's biography. His journal is so beautiful. My journal is so boring because it's just, it's just (laughs) extemporaneous. I just write my prayers. And when I look through it, it's just the same things I'm asking God and saying to God over and over and over and over. And, um, so don't publish my journal after. Just, I've never said that publicly. It's recorded now. Don't publish my journal. It's on the record. Um, <laughs> do, not, do not publish Tish's journal. Fair enough. Fair enough. But uh, the, it becomes rote. But I also think um, an analogy I, I've heard, this is not unique to me, is um, when I say I love you to my kids every day and I say I love you to, my, to, to Jonathan, my husband, every day, um, and does that, is that sometimes rote in the sense that when mm-hmm. I say goodnight, I love you, do, am I always overwhelmed with the sense of like mm-hmm. deep love for my children? Um, no, I mean, I love my children, but I don't always feel it. Often I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, I gotta go return this email. Stop mm-hmm. hitting your sister. <laughs> stop asking for water. Like yeah. go to bed. I love you. Good night. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. That's a good analogy. But, but do we only say I love you when we deeply, deeply feel it? Because what mm. a terrible practice that would be. Like that would actually mm. end up diminishing our love for the people around us if we only waited until we felt it. Um, mm. But then good. because I've said it 10,000 times, there are some times I look at them. I'm overwhelmed by their isness in the world, by their very being in the world, the miracle that they mm. are. And I can look at them. And and see my oldest daughter's freckles and my my second daughter's um, beautiful eyes and my son's um, just kind of insane stare into my soul and look at them and say, <laughs> "I love you," right? And um, but it's but I don't think I could do that if I only waited until those moments to say I love you. And so I think mm. um, a lot of our life is habit and routine and mm. um. And so, yeah, we, I, I prayed Compline a lot of times um, before I start the book in this moment where I'm in the emergency room and mm. I'm, and I'm hemorrhaging and we don't know if I'm going to be okay. And I'm waiting for surgery. And it was kind of a scary moment and a sad moment because I was, I was miscarrying. And, um, and I, it was nighttime. It's the time that I could have, that I would have prayed Compline. And I just knew I needed it. I needed to pray. I had no idea how to pray at that point, except for just like help. Um, it was within a month of my father Pat going into the emergency room and and not coming out. I mean, he died, and so, um, so in that moment, I just I needed to pray, and I I couldn't, I could not pray, and I and I knew I needed to, and so I just asked for Compline. So, and mm. it was incredibly not rote. What I mean is, it was like. I had memorized it because I didn't have a book of common prayer with me. So I, I was, I was able to, um, sort of, uh, uh, I was, my husband led it and I was able to respond by memory, but I, um, but 
So it was real, it was vital, it was necessary, but I was only able to be non-rote in that exact moment because uh, I it, it had been wrote other times, right? Because I just prayed it and didn't get a huge amount out of it. And so I, I would say this goes for everything. This goes for scripture reading in our life. This goes for um, prayer. Uh, that that it's unrealistic to think that this is going to be a deeply meaningful experience every single time. Mm. And there's certainly mm, that's times very well put. I yeah. walk away from scripture, and I'm befuddled. And I'm mm. I mean, this last week I went I went on a prayer retreat and I was reading through the Gospels. There's one place where I just said. I like wrote in the in the margin link. I don't like this. I don't get this. I don't understand. Um, and I th- so I think um, we're going to have times like that with everything. With with this is a normal part of the Christian life. Is what I'm trying to communicate. To have times that feel rote or dry or confusing or or um, or or even where where we're not certain about it where we struggle with doubt or um and that's normal um uh a part of my concern i guess with 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 a little bit of the ex-evangelical movement um and there's part that i'm not there's parts i could talk about that are that are good and kind of deconstruction but part of it is i just want to say that like doubt doubt and faith are not oppositional that's a normal Mm. part of the christian life and and you see it in the Psalms, you see it in the scriptures, uh, in the saints, in the lives of the saints. So, yeah. um, so doubt doesn't mean you have to sort of hit the eject button. Um, but I do think we need practices that kind of help us walk where we're not being dishonest, where we're not mm-hmm. lying about our faith. Um, but that, all that to say, I think that, that times of dryness and, and doubt in the Christian life are really normal. Um, and we need to um, uh, be able to embrace that, partly because I actually think that walking into those practices, so we walk in these practices, we learn these practices, and then something happens in our life. We have deep suffering, death, sometimes great joy, a baby's born, like things happen, yeah. and we come back to those practices as different people because of the sort of experiences that we've had in life and they're, they have sort of a new life to them that they would not have had if we hadn't, um, if we hadn't known them really well, if we, if we hadn't walked in those practices and times when they were wrote. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. I think even of Saint uh, Teresa of Avila. You know, one of my favorite prayers I've sort of stolen from her, where she said, "God, I don't love you. God, I don't want to love you, but God, I want to want to love you." Mm. Um, amen. You know what a great prayer. But she also is was rooted in so many practices. Yeah. You know, as a nun, and and so finding that the the, the training wheels to our prayers, as as uh, one of the Anglican um, pastors that I coach says, and I think that's that's beautiful. And um, I, if if you have time, just these last few minutes, I would love the opportunity to just ask you a couple of questions about your calling as both 
a pastor, but also as a writer. And you, you mentioned Eugene Peterson a moment ago. Eugene uh, was a mentor of mine for several years before he died. And of course, he oh, was a wow. preacher. That's cool. Yeah, he was a preacher, but much more of his calling. I mean, it just involved being a writer as well. And I sense the same thing with you also, that your calling includes writing in addition to ministry or, you know, it complements or comes in line with. So how did you know that writing was a part of your calling? How did you discern that? Yeah, I didn't know. Um, I never expected to be a writer. That's not something I really thought I would be. Um, I mean, partly because I was a kid in Texas and <laughs> in a very pragmatic family. Like saying I wanted to be a writer would be like, I want to be a professional baseball player. It's like, okay, that's good for you. But also, I think as a kid, I, I mean, I just thought writers were fiction writers, which I, I never I, it The point is, I, I never as a 14-year-old would have thought, I'll be a spiritual writer. I had no idea what that was. Um, I loved writing in seminary, but I, I really felt, I knew that I was, I was called to serve the church. And so my, I thought that would be as a, as a pastor, campus minister, or missionary. I thought for a while I might be overseas. Um, so the writing thing kind of happened later. I sort of stumbled. It, it really was a, um, well, of speaking of Peterson, where he talks about, um, that he, uh, one of the analogies that um, is used in, in Burning My Bones is um, that this this poem of um, following the scent. And so um, that you, you find their vocation sometimes not in these really clear cut ways, but by, by following a scent, right? And so, um, yeah, so I think um, it was more like that for me. I, I, started having a strong sense that I was called to write, um, which I don't have strong senses of being called to much at all. That's not a common thing for me. I mean, even when people are like, how did you know that this was the person you should marry? I was like, I didn't, I was never certain. And we just, <laughs> we just got married. Like I never, it was never like, oh, this is super <laughs> clear. Um, yeah, but, but with writing, uh, there was some weird stuff. I mean, people were having like, charismatic visions of me mm. like putting words into the world and stuff that and, and I won't wow. go into it but stuff that like that doesn't happen to me I don't that's not a thing in my life I'm not a I'm mm. not I'm surrounded by I'm not I'm not like deep in a in the charismatic community so I don't so there was that sort of thing but I never expected this what has happened to my life with writing was absolutely unpredictable and I and I can't explain it um because when I started I was in campus ministry and I started writing for this thing called the well which is intervarsity's um uh it's a, a online magazine for women in the academy and professions and I did it because the editor Marsha there um she's no longer the editor there but she was at the time and she I just love her. I mean, she was just a mentor to me. And um, it was wonderful, very, um, just an incredible uh, woman and, and person. And so she asked me to write and I did. And she said, oh, you have a voice. You have to keep doing this. Right, right, right. And I had two little kids and 
was busy. So I just kind of ignored her and she just kind of pestered me to keep writing. And so I started writing for her. But again, like this is a teeny tiny thing, like not a lot of people read this. So it was very much a hobby. It, it was, it, it was part of what I did is because I was doing university um, campus ministry at the time. And this is part of university. So it kind of counted as work. But it was like a very small part of what I did. And then, um, but it just started gathering this little following. And then um, Andy Crouch um, tweeted something that I wrote and it went really crazy, super viral. And Andy started following me as a writer and asked me to write for Christianity Today. And then I did. Um, and it, and then, and then they just kept asking and then other people asked and then, um, and then, I, and then people started asking me to write a book. So it just kind of like grew and, and now writing is, um, it's the majority of what I do. It's actually in terms of kind of local church ministry versus writing, I'm doing more writing now. I preach and, um, and I, I, we, I serve in our local church in, in various smaller ways, but, um, uh, but, um, most of what my calling is right now is, is writing. So, but now, and, and it's actually been somewhat of a shift for me. I'm having to, I'm having to kind of, um, rethink my own vocational identity in that. And then I always sort of thought I was a, a pastor that kind of writes on the side and now it's, it's becoming, I'm a writer that sort of pastors on the side, <laughs> mm, <laughs> just in yeah. terms of sheer time. I mean, I have three children. One of my children is, is only one year. He's one year old. So, um, so we still have, there's, we still, I have a lot on my plate and so there's only so much I can hold. And so, um, yeah. as writing has grown, um, that's just become a bigger and bigger part of my sort of daily spend I spend more time writing now than I do um like meeting with college students and and things like that that I've done in the past well I mean just as a writer one of the things that I always have to think through myself is like how do I keep my motives in check as I write Mm. And, and I know there are temptations as we write and I don't mean the egregious or sinful temptations but the more subtle and maybe even the more thus the more enticing of them like telling the truth plus or minus 10 percent you know, it's like a temptation that writers constantly have. Like, do do you sense that at all in terms of some of those temptations as a writer with a significant and still growing platform? Um, and when you bump up next to them, like, how do you how do you keep your motives in check yeah. as you write? It's a such a struggle, and I just I do think I struggle a lot with. Um, it is a constant conversation in my life with friends and with. Um, Jonathan about sort of how to be a writer in a way that is full of truth and light that um how do you do this well and honestly and uh, how do you do the writing honestly and it, but then honestly and this could get we could do a whole other podcast about this but they could, <laughs> there's a whole there's a whole like Christian industrial complex I I told a, men- yeah. a mentor of mine recently like I love writing I'm not sure I like being a writer in the Christian world you know um because there's other things that come with that that have been hard um so this is a conversation I have all the time and in fact speaking of a burning in my bones when Collier was in town and I yeah. I um I got asked if I could 
get him a taco and a beer and um, just <laughs> for hours was just sort of like how do you do this like how do you how do you keep how do you do this and and continue to be a person of integrity how did peterson do this how do you not lose mm. your soul in the midst of all this and um so I, it's something i struggle with a lot is the point um but i think so it's interesting okay so to your particular question like the the plus or minus 10 percent of truth in writing that's a tricky one for me because i do think every writer like there are things that are part of my life that I have chosen not to write about um there even when I write about myself in my own books or my husband in my own books it always everything I say is true it's a hundred percent I don't make stuff up it's a hundred percent true but it always feels like I'm writing about a character other than in that I'm not going to put everything about my husband on the page. I'm not going to put everything about myself on the page. I'm certainly not going to put everything about my children on the page. Right. And so mm-hmm. it ends up where I'm sharing this story, but I'm sharing it for, for a particular literary or catechetical reason. And mm-hmm. so it's like sharing stories and sermons, right. And that, that they're, um, they're true. They're not exaggerated. But there's always other stories that it, it's always longer stories that you're trying to condense in this smaller space, unless it's like a memoir, right? Yeah. But even then, like with memoirs, I mean, to decide what to put in and what not. I mean, I remember Mary Carr and her, um, she's one of my very favorite memoirists. And, and she talked about writing Lit. Uh, which is a story about her divorce um, with her husband and her conversion to Catholicism and her struggle with alcoholism. But particularly about the divorce part, she was saying the first time she wrote it, she wrote it where it was all her husband's fault, basically. And the second time she wrote it, she wrote it, she rewrote it where it was like all her fault. And wow. and then in the third part, she tried to sort of, sort of um, steer between them, right? Like get, get, bring the complexity of it, of it being both but even then like there's no way she can tell that whole story and so the second you put something on a page it feels like um it's uh it it becomes a fish in the book is not the exact person as tish in real life right it becomes if you put someone in two dimensions they're they're somewhat of a character um even though all those things really, really happened to me. So I'm trying to articulate, I'm not trying to spin things. I want to be clear. I'm trying to articulate what really happened in the truth of what happened. Um, But if you were my best friend while that was happening and I was talking to you about everything I was feeling day to day, there's no way it would be as linear, as clear as yeah. kind of put together as it is in a in a book. And so um it always feels a little different than real life is the point. And mm. I think yeah. writers really need to actually draw those boundaries. Um I get a little skeptical because vulnerability and sort of telling the worst thing that ever happened to you sells things. So but we also need to like not just lead out of that. I think there are really appropriate um parts of our Christian life, parts of our spirituality, parts of our marriages, parts of our own kind of struggle and um, daily life that we don't share. Um, that's just not for public consumption. So there's that, no. but then there was something else you asked about. 
um, writing. I can't remember. You said you said the thing about um, yeah. well, um, motives and temptations. You yeah. know, they're uh, they're similar but different on that. But you know, as a growing platform, I I just wonder. You know, as your platform continues to grow, does that become harder or does yeah. that become easier for you now that you've been writing for several years? This is what I'm this is what I was going to say, and this kind of answers your question. One of the hard things for me is the partly as the platform's grown, but I actually think it's been as a I mean, man, it's funny because I really started writing fairly consistently, again, like sort of as a hobby, but consist where I was doing it, where I was publishing multiple times, you know, in a month, um, uh, in 2013. Um, and it feels to me like the church landscape that I'm writing in now in 2021 is just so different. Um, even, even then, you know, that's less than 10 years ago, but so what's hard for me I hope this makes sense. I'd love to know how, if you identify with this, but is um, to not write out of a reactionary posture all the time. It's just so Mm -hmm. easy for me to kind of react Mm -hmm. in my writing, to like write in reaction to um, uh, white evangelicalism or nationalism, right? In reaction to things taking a hard right turn. Um, in my own kind of denomination institution in the last uh, year or so, or the opposite, right? In reaction to um, uh, uh, kind of evangelical movement, or right in reaction to um, parts of liberalism in our culture that I think are illiberal or intolerant, um, or right in reaction to um, sort of. <laughs> Uh, just the deep on both sides, the deep um, uh, um, polarity and divisiveness of of our culture. So, in other words, I don't want to be writing. I I want to write out of truth and beauty, and not just sort of always out of kind of angry reaction to someone who said something stupid on Twitter, and I'm and mm. and that's stuck in my craw. And that's what I'm going to write, you know, my next chapter out of, or my next book out of, my next, um, I, because we can't put our heads in the sand. I'm not saying, I mean, I write, I'm, I'm a columnist. I write out of what's happening in the world. So I have to be kind of in touch with what's happening in culture and I need to respond to that. But the difference of response and reaction feels quite important to me of, of, am I responding in a, in a place of trying to speak light and truth and beauty in the midst of this or am I reacting out of just sort of wanting to distance myself from these particular Christians or or um, condemn something out of my own sense of self-righteousness or um or even just out of anger like straight up anger and so um yeah it does feel to me like there's so much it, uh, emotional regulation like figuring out my the own motives of my own soul is just a lot a bigger it's a bigger part of my writing life than it was at the beginning um Mm, having to sort through all of that is has been it's honest it's pretty exhausting it's hard but um yeah and then with platform just knowing like um 
the hard thing with that is um how are how you start to have to figure out how to steward your platform well um how to how to use it for the good of others and um so just this is the difficult part is that wisdom some says sometimes keep your mouth shut and don't speak out yeah but cowardice says the same thing um keep your mouth shut and don't speak out and so to know when is it cowardice and when is it wisdom is that's a hard i think that's really hard um so yeah i mean man you cannot be a public writer right now without a lot of prayer and silence and um friends helping and but also like your grace like you're good it's i'm not i'm not gonna get it right i'm not gonna get it perfect at all so yeah it it reminds me of something this has helped me so much uh dallas willard um before he died we were he was speaking at an event and there were a bunch of pastors sitting around at lunch with him and and i said what do you do when there's like people are going after you dallas and he said um i just can still remember how calm he was he just said jr he said never react only respond yeah he said offer to explain yourself but never defend yourself mm-hmm. he said jesus is your defender yeah. and i <laughs> Tish, I tell you, there are so many times where that has saved me, whether it's like an email I want to dash off real quick or I want to say something that I realize later I'm going to regret um, or, yeah, some post somewhere online or in an article to say, no, 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 JR, like you can respond, but don't react. Mm-hmm. Offer to explain yourself or explain whatever, you know, denominational situation or whatever, but don't defend yourself. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is your defender. And I just have found that to be something that has saved me so often <laughs> hopefully uh not regretting things or having to go back and repent later uh, for something that i've said or or even written so yeah that's one final a really question. really good word that's a great yeah word. yeah and that saved me a lot and i'm grateful for for his wisdom in many ways but that particularly so uh, one final question i know i'm keeping you long here but one final question and you can you can answer this briefly or or at great length but in in your book prayer in the night and talking about writing so what was the hardest chapter or section for you to write in that book? I mean, that's a very emotional book. Starting in the emergency room is where you open the book. That's you're you're opening yourself up and 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 really pouring yourself out. But what was the hardest section to write in the book? Yeah. The, so um two maybe three chapters come to mind. I can't pick one. Um when was the one? It's actually not the really deeply emotional stuff that was hard. I mean, it, that that was oh, interesting. That was emotionally hard to write. It was draining, but the the part that was that was sort of difficult for me were the chapters where I didn't know what kind of angle to take as a writer. Once you kind of know what you want to say, it's a lot easier to say it. But um. Mm. So the work chapter was hard. It's funny because each of these chapters, it became a joke in our house. Like the sickness chapter, I was finishing in the waiting room of a doctor's office when I got diagnosed with gestational diabetes. Um, mm. The I turned this this book in from a hospital bed <laughs> with complications wow. of our of our. Um, pregnancy that the, our son Gus who was fine and I'm fine so but it was a there was so 
it felt like we had to sort of live in the mourning chapter. I was just, there was, there was a lot that I was mourning during it and things that were going down. And so I was just crying the whole time. And wow, so it became, you're living your writing. <laughs> yeah, I was living it. So to where it was like, I can't, we would joke, like, I can't write the dying chapter because one of us is going to die. We can't, I just can't do it. Um, but mm. So the um, the things so work was hard work was hard work I mean work I toiled over the toil chapter and so it was another sort of irony is it was like a really hard chapter partly because there's just there's a lot that's been said on work and faith um, and there, and I covered it I had a whole chapter on that in liturgy the ordinary so I didn't want to just say the same thing and I and yeah. trying to find this balance of we really can work. We really can make, we can bring light into the darkness. We can make a difference in the world. And yet we're not going to bring the eschaton. Like think like the limits of what we can do are, are depressing to some extent. And even our work, even good work participates in systems of a, that are dark, that are sinful. Um, everything from commerce and the commerce system to the church, right? Like to institutional evil in the church. And so having to sort of try to capture all that and articulate all that and figure out what to say was hard. Um, but I actually think the chapter of affliction was pretty tough for me to write um, because it felt like I wasn't, uh, I, I don't feel like I've often experienced like profound affliction that I would be counted among the afflicted. And so um, it was, it's a tough thing to write about folks that uh, I, I didn't want to end up being kind of a privileged person, um, disempowering um, the inflicted or the afflicted, the, those that are in deep, deep suffering. Um, mm. But I am a privileged person. So there was, there was, there's some, there was a tension in that. But honestly, the hardest chapter for me to write was the joy chapter. It killed me. Um, interesting. Which is so, it was so interesting. Yeah, it, it, it makes me want to write more on the topic because what I realized is essentially pastors are horrible at talking about joy. We just don't, under, we mm. don't have a great theology of joy um, because when you talk to people about joy that are Christians, often joy just sounds terrible. Like it's just sort of, it's kind of, because people want to really make a big distinction between happiness and joy. So when they talk about it, it's like, it's, it's when everything goes wrong, everything is terrible. When everything is horrible. Like it's still, you know, it's, it's kind of like this deep, I don't know, sense of God's goodness in the midst of that. But it's sort of like, Oh my gosh, like, I hope I don't experience that. Um, and the way it isn't like who would want to have joy um but then i also don't want to so so what i was struggling with is like i want to say that like the joy of eating ice cream is an actual joy that's real <laughs> but i don't want to say like our hope is built on nothing less than like you know luxury sheets you know good high mm. bread count sheets and ice cream and good coffee um mm. so how do i really really affirm things how do I affirm like our experience of pleasure and beauty and goodness and happiness as a type of joy, but not reduce joy to that? And so I talked to so many pastors on that and so many friends and theologians. And I just felt like this is you guys. It was I. <laughs> it was, 
it, I just never felt like I got a great answer on, on joy. And I, and I, so I ended up rewriting the chapter. Um, and mm. I like how it turned out. I mean, I ended up talking about this big theological concept of sacramental ontology, the, the idea that these actual moments of joy in our life are joyful because they touch on something eternal. They touch on something of God's, of who God is. So that even when we don't experience those things, the eternal thing remains that the part of God who is a joy giver is still, is still, he's still a joy giver. Um, Mm. But I still to this day don't, don't always feel like I have a good emotional understanding of what joy is. Um, Mm. And I think that I'm, I want to write more on this because I think this is a place the church really, really struggles. So, yeah, yeah, great. Awesome. Yes. Well, thanks so much for this uh, wide-ranging but really engaging conversation. Very grateful for you in both your ministry calling uh, through the local church, but also through your writing. And I know many other people appreciate that. So thanks for joining us today, Tish. It was great to have you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us for today's episode. Before you go, we wanted to let you know that we've launched online group coaching cohorts and online group spiritual direction cohorts for pastors and leaders just like you. They meet monthly to equip, encourage uh, you and other leaders and to offer you a chance to journey with other leaders from around the country as well. For more information, you can log on to kairospartnerships.org or check out the show notes. Thanks for listening to MMP and we'll see you next week.